Today's guest is Raymond O'Brien. Raymond comes from a family of seers and has had multiple near-death experiences. He has been interviewed on television shows in the United Kingdom, and he has been published by the John Hopkins University on the subject of near-death and the lack of care and understanding of this in the medical world. Raymond, thank you very much for giving me some of your time today. I really appreciate you being here. You're very welcome, Jeff, and thank you for asking me. Thank, thank you. you. It's a real, it's a real privilege. Thank you. Most welcome, uh, Raymond. Um, my audience loves to hear about near-death experiences, so can we just jump right into it? And can we start with how yours happened? Yeah, of course. Um, first off, hello to, to Jeff's audience. Pleased to meet you guys all out there. Um, well, my my story is a bit of an unusual one. It's a bit of a traumatic one. Um, and it still sort of rocks my world to this very day. I'm into my, let me see now, twelfth or thirteenth year since the event had happened, uh, the initial event. Um, I come from, as, as, as you've mentioned, Jeff, I come from a family of seers. Uh, my mother's German, my father was Irish. Uh, father was in the army and uh, he met mum during the, just towards the end, after the Second World War. Uh, and, um, I have two other brothers and a, and a beautiful sister who helps me to do what I do. Um, the payment for, should I say, the payment um, from a f- physical viewpoint um, of the initial NDEs um, was um, a little bit of brain damage, oxygen starvation to the brain. Um, so quite often I struggle with that. Uh, I do process things, but it takes me a lot longer to process stuff. Um, <clears throat> so I come from a family seers. Um, the seeing side came from from my mother's side. Um, she was uh, she was a healer, stroke seer in a little German village called Neumünster uh, um, during the war. And if the doctor couldn't heal you, then you would get sent to Granny's. Uh, mm. And if Granny couldn't help you, well, well, well then, it, you know, best of luck, really. Mm. Um, so Granny took jaundice off somebody. Um, these are the stories that came from my mum. I never actually met my, my Granny. Um, she um, took jaundice off a lady and, and had told the family that she couldn't get rid of the jaundice, and, um, that she was going to die. So there was a correlation with that. When I used to hear this story, I thought, gosh, imagine being told what it's that, that you, you're going to die. How do, you, how do you cope with that from a psychological viewpoint? So um, the family went up to visit my granny in, in hospital. And the granny had said to my mother that um, it's just as well you're here today because tomorrow I, I shan't be. She said death came for her that, that night previous. And she asked, could, could she stay just to see the family? So death is the, said yes. So mm-hmm. lo and behold... Um, just true as Granny's word was, she did go the following day. And, uh, my grandfather, he committed suicide. Um, and the family was decimated from, from, from the war, to be quite honest with you. Um, so everyone split up. I have uh, quite a well-known uncle. Um, if you was in Amsterdam and if you went to the Anne Frank Museum, um, and if you went up to, to the loft, you'd see a picture up on, on the wall of my uncle, Heinz Ruhmann. He was a big German movie star. Uh, 
And one of my other aunties was called Hertha Filer. And she was a big movie star as well. Um, so they were quite well known. Uh, when the Russians came to Berlin, uh, my auntie Hertha was uh, raped on several occasions, several, several times, um, in front of my uncle, um, <coughs> uncle Heinz Ruhmann. Um, and this is all things I only sort of found out over the last two years, to be honest, when we did some research. And, and what drove me to the research was my own self-concept of survival. I couldn't understand how I'd survived through all of the NDEs, through all of the things that had ran up to the NDE. Um, moving on a little bit forward to, to sort of like four or five years old in Germany, where my father was based in the army, we was based in a, in a small town called Iserlohn. And um, my mother's brother was living in Dortmund at the time. We used to go and visit. So Sunday, it was a big thing. After Sunday dinners, we'd go out for a walk and have a walk around the ornamental gardens, which was just over the road from, from where my aunt and uncle lived. And I walked over there with, with my mother. Uh, we stopped by an old lady who had a big black hat on and a black veil, black gloves, sort of curvature of the spine. And she was called Omar, which in Germany just means granny. So granny, my mum, my um, little Raymond, like, you know, and uh, we're standing looking at the ornamental gardens and I've heard raised voices and I've looked up at my mum and she's arguing with Omar. And, uh, and I'd never really heard the two of them argue before, so I knew something was going on. And, uh, so Omar went off one way and mum and I went further in, in, into the ornamental gardens. And I remember looking up at mum and I said, what was the argument about? And she said, Omar said it was time for you to go with her to be taught. And, uh, and at that time, I distinctly remember that I, I, and I'm a bit disturbed to think about it now. Mm. So I wasn't really perturbed about who I was going to go with. It didn't matter whether I stayed with mum or, or I went with, I had never even seen her face, Jeff. You know, mm. just in black with a cane and the black gloves. And uh, so I, I thought, well, if mum's taking the responsibility to, to train me, well, then that, that must be it. I didn't know anything about what the training was going to be about, I mean, what mum had said. So because Pops was in the army, we used to, we used to move quite a lot, you know, uh, different postings. So we ended up back in England for a short, brief period of time. I remember standing at the front of the class, I was still very young, and the teacher said, uh, let's, let's find somebody who we, we can pair you up with, Raymond. And I, for some reason, Jeff, I'd already spotted the child that I was going to be paired up with. And, uh, and, and I wasn't surprised when I heard the teacher say, it'll, it'll be that child there. It was just, well, that, that's kind of what I thought. So I was already a seer by then, but I didn't know it. Um, I always had a bad habit of playing in, in, out of my elders. I was very much an insular child. Um, to those around me, but for things I would see, I was never alone. Mm. I always used to play in one of the places where we stayed. I can't remember what country it was in, but I was messing around out the back with the drains. I was always poking a stick into the drains. And, um, my mum triggered me probably about 15 years ago. She said, I remember when you was a child, you'd always play, play out the back just where the drains are. She said, you kept having these sores around your, around your mouth because you kept poking the stick in. 
And it was that moment when she told me this, when I realised the reason why I was out at the back of the house where the drains were, because that was where the light used to appear. And from the light, people would speak to me through, through as I was playing. So that was my drive to be out there. And I was already told back then of the preciousness and the skills that I already had within me. Um, and that everything was going to be all right. didn't matter what was going to happen, everything would be all right. So as I developed, started start to grow up, um, I wasn't really seen too much by then. I was still under my mother's wing. Um, we were still in close contact with other sides of mother's family. Um, there was my mother, one of my mother's brothers. He was a seer himself, uh, troubled him an awful lot. He was um, a functioning alcoholic at the time, spent a lot of time in prison. Um, and I, couldn't, I couldn't understand the guy. I didn't understand why he was like that, uh, that until much later in life. That's when I, well, now I know why Dieter was the way he was when I started to become a prophecy. It made bored its way into me. There was, there was, no, there was no stopping it. it didn't that? I was probably Jeff on the run up to the NDE. I was running. I knew I had to change. I felt internally that you can't keep this up. You know, it's this, but I didn't. I turned to drink and drugs by then, which is where my mother's brother had started. So I felt this connection. I couldn't understand why I was going down this route of starting to see things. I didn't want it. I wanted to be just a normal guy who was just a tradesman, basically. I didn't want the responsibility of being a seer. Um, and then I went to visit my mum. And uh, about 20, 25 years ago, she lived in central London. There's something wrong with her foot. And uh, she instructed me quite firmly, uh, put your hands around my foot. She said, it's sore. And I didn't want to. Mm-hmm. Uh, but so it's, it's mum. So I did. Cupped her foot, looked up at her. The pain just went. And then there's loads of people like me who do this. I'm, I'm not the only one who has this skill. And uh, so I, I thought, well, I don't have to do that again. Right? You know, that's the first and last time I'll, 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 I'll do that. And, uh, and how wrong could I have been? So I'm working in London, Jeff, and uh, I'm struggling. I'm struggling doing that kind of work, the sort of work that I was doing. I was a mechanical engineer. And I remember working with a, with a friend one day. We were in a person's flat. And we were there to work on her heating appliances. And it was an old lady. And the old lady knew that the lady who I was working with. And, uh, the two of them started talking. And the old, my friends asked, how is she? And the old lady said she had something wrong with her ear. And she went, you're really lucky, love. She said, we've got Voodoo Ray with us today. Mm-hmm. And uh, the old lady goes, well, who was that then? He said, he's got this ability of, of, of stopping pain. So, she, so, my supervisor says to me, if you work on her, Ray, I'll, I'll work on, on, on the appliances and, uh, and then we'll meet at the end. All right. So I set myself up in, in, in the lady's front room, got the positioning right. For some reason, it, it matters where she was facing. And I put my hand to her right ear and, and that was it. Right, you know, Next thing I know, she's like, she's up, she's out the chair. She's, she's saying to my, to my work buddy, my ear is fantastic. It's just great. There's nothing wrong with it. 
So we pack all the tools away, put the woman's house right again. We're sitting out in the, uh, in the, in the vehicle. Uh, both of us were, were smokers. And uh, I'm rolling myself a, a, a roll up. And she's in the driver's seat. And I just, just sort of sparked it up. And she's got her hands over the steering wheel. She's looked to my left. And, and she swore. She went, hell, voodoo. How do you do what you've just done and do this work? Like, you know, she went, I can't understand how you can have one foot in either world. And I, and I remember turning towards her with a, with a sort of a blasé feeling. But immediately, immediately behind that feeling was a sense of, you're in trouble, Ray, because this is what you should be doing. And, and I said, I don't know. I, I'll just keep doing, doing what I do. But I knew by her question that something was coming at me. I could feel it, Jeff. I knew it. I just, you know, I'm, 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 I was a seer, but I didn't recognize it. But I knew something was coming at me. So a couple of months later, uh, working for another company back in London, finish early, decide that I'll go and see my mum. So I get to the house, and unusually, the house was empty, uh, other than, than my mum. And uh, she's sitting at the uh, our kitchen table. And she asked me, she said, well, how's, how's, how's everything going? Then? And I assumed she was talking about work. I said, it's going great, Mum. I said, yeah, we're doing all right. She went, no, no, I'm not talking about that. What? She's like, I'm talking about the other thing. I thought, she hadn't said this before. I said, well, it's all right, Mum. I said, it's a bit slow. I don't know. She said, what do you mean it's a bit slow? I said, well, at this rate, it's going to take me like all my lifetime to understand it. She said, if it all came at once, do you think you could handle it? And I remember going, no. And this is when she got really serious. She leaned. In my mother's family, if you're in trouble, the finger came out. Like, you know, it's called the filer finger. She'd start wagging it, like, you know. And she said to me, you have to change. And uh, I said, what, what, what do you mean, change, Mum? I knew what she was talking about because she knew what, what I was doing, drinking drugs. And, uh, and I, I went, oh, it, it'll be all right, Mum. I'll, I'll be okay. Anyway, she said, if you don't change, something bad is going to happen to you. And that's when the finger waved. And I, and I made a joke of it. I knew how serious it was just by the way she was telling me. I said, well, you know me, well, I've been up to some things in my life. It'll have to be pretty bad. And she just went really stern. She said, it will be really bad. And that was all she said. I thought, left it a couple of months, Jeff. Still hear those words rattling around, like, you know, the seeing ability was increasing all of the time. By this time, sort of early 2000s, 2004, I was, I was out of control, like, you know, just out of control. Still doing my work. Uh, I was dating a beautiful lady in Istanbul, mm. spending a lot of time in Istanbul, and a beautiful doctor. And uh, one day, it's maybe I'm pretty sure some of your other guests you've had on, um, I had a download. But it was an unexpected download, a spiritual download, whatever you want to call it. But it came into my life in the afternoon as I sat in this lovely lady's apartment in the middle of Istanbul, and it smashed me to pieces. She came in, and I was in tears down by the door, and she, she sort of looked at me and was like, uh-oh, I haven't seen this side of Raymond before, you know? Uh, so I knew something wasn't right, so I rang my sister, and uh, she had this ability to calm me down. So I calmed down, 
about another just another couple of days left in Istanbul. Came back home, felt really out of sorts with myself, and uh, went back to work on a Wednesday. I'm driving back home from work, and this little voice. Sorry, Wednesday on a, on a Wednesday morning. I'm driving to work. The traffic was quite heavy going into London, and the police were, were it was just roadblocks, and they were checking people's details. And I remember as I looked over the road, as I could see them pulling the cars over, this thought, this random thought just went through my head. He said, what would you do if you ran a child over, Ray? And I remember thinking, that's a pretty disturbing thought. (sighs) Got to work, thought nothing of it. At the end of the work day, I'm literally five minutes from where I live here turned into the final road into my little road and I've had that thought of what if you ran somebody over and the only answer that I could give myself was slow right down right just just in case just slow right down you know so I'm now instead of doing 15 miles an hour I'm now doing 10 miles an hour and over the slow road bumps out of the corner of my eye who do I see Jeff I see this little girl running really slowly with her friends along the pavement to my left she's veered off from her friends and ran straight out in front of my van you know she's bang hit the left hand side of my bonnet has come up the side of the bonnet and been spat onto the road like you know and I'm thinking so I get out like you know um and she's 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 stood up by this time she's got the tiniest little graze just just on her forearm like you know so um Call the police. The police turn up. Uh, you know they're they're like you know we can't understand why she's not dead. You know what 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 what's happened? Why she's still alive? So I told them the story. Well, this morning I had this vision. I was going to run over a child. When we get here, decide to act on that vision, and then she runs out, and, and I just run her over. And um, so all all three of us are standing there like gobsmacked. Um, and she's all right. I get I get home and and I'm, I'm disturbed. You know. I'm also very happy that I haven't done her any more harm, but I'm traumatized because of what I'd seen in the morning and then it was acted out towards the end of the day. And I just want to say that a lot of the things I see, a lot of the people, when I tell them the anecdotes of, of, of my past life, some people are like, oh, I can't believe you've got this, this gift uh, you know, it must be it must be amazing to do it, but it isn't. First off, it's not a gift. I, mean, I don't believe that what I have is a gift. That's, that's, let's just get that one right out of the way. To somebody said, I said one day, somebody I was given a gift, and the person said, "Why do you think that you deserve to be given a gift, Ray?" And I, and I thought I hadn't thought of it like that. Mm. And I thought that's that's pretty true. Uh, for, from that moment on, I called it a skill. You know, and. Um, because I felt it would exclude others from going down the path that I went down because they may not think that they're worthy of such a gift. You know? So I, I didn't want that. I, I, you know, I, I believe that given the right circumstances, given the right input, given the right training, the right knowledge, you know, we can all do this. That, you know, it's, it's whether or not we have the time to do that. Um, as I described to you in my life, I've, I've been fortunate enough or, or unfortunate enough to have the time to hone my skills with with this Uh, and um so 
I've had that. I've ran the child over, traumatized with it, like something's going on here, right? Something is going on that is out of your hands, right? You know, this is this is now out of your hands. I, I'm, I'm still smoking. I'm still drinking at night. Still trying to put it all to one side. I, I want to live a normal life. I don't want to see cancer on people. I don't want to see illnesses on people. I want to be Raymond O'Brien. Nothing more, nothing less. Right, you know, uh, I want to get all of my life. And then one day, I was working at a gypsy's house. He was, uh, he was uh, this guy was a bodybuilder. And uh, the curious thing, I, I was a super keep fit freak. Even though I was smoking 60 joints a day and doing like two or three pints of cider a night, I was still on it, like, you know, still physically fit, physically big. Um, and and put, that was my offset. That was how I would defend myself by keeping fit against the way that I was behaving. So I'm talking to this this, this gypsy guy and I said, how, how did you get the chest, Martin? Uh, you know, so he gives me these exercises. So this is on a Wednesday. Try them, he said, try them. I get home and I'm gonna do them like you know, and I think, whoa, what's a bit, a bit sore. Comes around to Saturday, I have to go back to his house to finish the work. And, uh, I've gone back, so I tell a lie, middle of the week, I go back to do some work. I've actually finished up on Saturday, but I'm driving back home in the middle of the week, and this voice has gone, said to me, You're going to die. And it, and it really freaked me out. Oh, it, was, it was as clear as I'm talking to you now. I got home and I was so freaked. I picked the phone up and I rang my mum. I, you know, I've told her, Mum, Mum, Mr. Voice has just told me I'm, I've just been told I'm going to die. I, you know. she, so she on the end of the phone, she went, Who told you? I said, The, the voice. And, and Jeff, she didn't, she didn't say nothing else. That was the end of the conversation. She just went, Oh. Uh, and, and, and I felt I, I have to hang up. I put the phone down. I'm thinking, well, that ain't very good. So Thursday, Friday comes, got chest pain, still doing these exercises, like, you know, gets back to uh, see Martin to finish up the, the work. How you get along with the chest exercises? Um, yeah, all right, mine, but flip it, heck, man, and I've hurt my chest. Have you been warming up? No. Problem. All right. All right. Big lad, I wasn't going to argue with him. Sunday. Sunday comes, like, you know, I have a sound room at the top of my garden. This is where all of the partying took place, didn't disturb anyone, all of the drug taking, all of the drinking took place. And I was up there, I was up there with my cat, Bill. Like, you know? mm. Bill had been with me for probably 18 years by then. Like, you know? uh, they'd been through thick and thin. He was, he was my other brother. Mm. Uh, I saved his life. He was attacked by couple of Staffordshire Bull Terriers and I beat the dogs off and I remember pointing my finger at him going, you owe me, you owe me for that. Mm-hmm. You know? and, um, I took him to the vet, he had a few bruises, but he was all right. So Sunday night, about 11 o'clock, I thought, drunk enough, smoke enough, time to go to bed. Like, you know? I get to bed, I'm lying in bed. Mr. Bill used to curl up downstairs on, on the sofa in the in the corner of, of, of the uh, settee. So I'm lying in bed, turn on my side, I'm thinking, oh, man, the chest exercises really do hurt. <laughs> so I got out of bed. I thought the only answer that I could do was to work the problem, exercise the problem out. Mm. Uh, so I got down by the side of the bed, and I think I pulled about 20 press-ups, and I felt, I felt all right. I, felt, oh, I knew it was muscle spasms. 
put back in the bed. No history of cardiac arrest, nothing. Like, you know, I'm, I'm still fit doing like 11, 12 miles and on, on the bike, doing work, you name it, you know. But I've still got my bad habits, habits that my mum had told me to stop. So, um, get back in the bed, turn on the other side, pain was even worse. And in between turning and getting out of bed, the heart had stopped. Right. I didn't know it. The only, the only reason that I knew it had stopped was this sense of panic and fear. I had my legs on the side of the bed, and I remember saying to myself, you're in trouble here, Ovi. You are in real trouble. Got out to the landing, went downstairs, hit the living room light on, and there's Bill in the corner of the sofa, who's like, popped up and looked at me. Um, and, I, and I swear, Jeff, he was an old boy by this time, so we knew each other like now. I knew every sort of movement on his face, I just knew. And he looked at me, and, and without him, he didn't have to say anything, his face said it all. And my answer back to him was, I know, B, I'm in a really bad way. I've got no clothes on. I'm thinking, I've got to call for an ambulance. So I've got a cordless phone. I picked the cordless phone up. And I, um, here in the UK, to call for an ambulance is triple nine, like, you know. But I only got as far as hitting two nines. And the next thing I know, I'm gone. I've just bumped the heart's gone. That's enough. Um, and I've collapsed on the floor downstairs here, phone in, in the hand, start bollock naked. And the next thing I, 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 I realise, I feel, is a rasping on the end of my nose. And, uh, and I open my eyes really slowly. And, and it's Bill. He's looking at me. Uh, you know, and it's he's got his breath was like smelling salts, and so the rasp from my nose and the smell of his breath just kind of brought me back. And I, I then the mind starts computing why am I on the floor? Um, you're in trouble, Ray. I've looked at the, the screen on, on the LED screen on the phone, I've hit the last nine, bang, got through to the operator. She said, What's your problem? So, so I've got chest pains. She says, Tell me what to do, leave the front door open. We'll, we'll, we'll send an ambulance to you, you know. So fortunately enough, my home is 10 minutes away from a major hospital, uh, Darren Valley Hospital. Um, and the ambulance service here, they don't park up at the ambulance stations. They park up at locations around the, the town, you know. And, um, and this played a major part. So I'm on the phone to the emergency services. She's telling me what to do. I'm thinking, I ain't got no clothes on. I've got to get dressed. I, you know, can't go to hospital with no clothes on. I'm not having that. Uh, so I got dressed, got the, the phone, still puffing and panting up and down the stairs here. The woman's telling me, don't worry about getting dressed. No, no. She said, the ambulance is on its way to you. And by this time, Jeff, it was about a quarter to 12 at night. And so, you know, my town is the big town. It kind of goes to bed at nine o'clock, so it's pretty quiet. So I'm sitting on my sofa with Bill, and he's sitting right next to me, and um, there's there's a lack of oxygen, and, and I felt out of this world, shall we say. And, uh, if it hadn't been for Bill, I probably wouldn't be here now. So the front door's left open, and I can hear it off in the distance. I can hear the siren. And, uh, and I remember thinking, this must be for you, Ray. And it was surreal. So the front doors open, and in walked these two earth angels dressed in their green paramedic tie, you know, with a box of tricks. 
And uh, one was a guy and one was a woman called, I can't remember the guy's name, sadly, but I remember the woman's name. Her name was Rebecca. And um, they came up and they, they took one look at me and they went, you look a bit rough, fella. I went, I feel really crook. I went, my chest is just, I can't breathe, I, you know. Uh, so bearing in mind, I'm a fit guy. But I distinctly remember walking out of that house and I remember saying to myself, I feel like I'm 100 years old. Um, you know, to have either, I was only 47 then, and uh, to have two people either side of me walking me to an ambulance was was just surreal. We get in the back of the ambulance, and I'm thinking, it'll all be over pretty soon, right? They'll sort this all out, it's nothing, else, you know. And, um, so we're still outside my house. Can't breathe, I'm gasping for air, absolutely gasping. I can hear Rebecca saying, you have to breathe, Ray. You have to breathe. She said, your oxygen levels are down to 26%. And I'm thinking, huh? She turned her back on me to do whatever she was going to do. And it was at that moment where I heard this voice go, if ever there's a time to check out, Ray, now's the time. And I put this chin to my right shoulder. The next thing, I'm on the other side. Oof. I'm now a little tiny soul. Naked, sexless, no sexual organs at all, oh, you know, in a climate which is just suits my body temperature. The wind is like, the wind was the first sentient being to greet me. It came from my right-hand side and it passed through me. And, and it was, it, as it went through me, that sounds crazy to say, as it went through me, it spoke to me. You know, we, we made friends and, and it was... It was like, what can I equate that wind to? I have a wood stove burner, and it's up in my sandwich. And when you open up that door and you get that lovely rush of that deep heat, that so pleasurable, it was very, very similar to that, very similar to that feeling. That was as the wind passed through me. And as I remember feeling it go through me, I was looking down. I could see my feet my, my my naked feet and um they were my soul was, was 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 scrunching the grass because the grass felt like green fur um and everything was really vivid everything was bright the sky was really bright all colors were just like boof um and, and as i was scrunching my toes I, I was consciously thinking you know where you are right you know where you are like, you know you can't come back from here without filling your boots. You know, this is, that's just the kind of person I am. I, I, I never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity. Um, so I'm soaking up everything. And my toes are scrunching into, into this beautiful, softest, furry grass I've ever had. And as I've looked down, I've, I've decided to look up. And as I've looked up, I had the thought of, I wonder where I'm going to go to get my wings. That was, that was, that was, a, that was a deliberate thought. <laughs> and, and off in the distance was two men and three women, you know. First guy was probably about his 50s, dark black hair, black beard. Everyone wore white. Everyone wore white, just like togas. The women had the, the, the veils over their heads, like, and over the faces, just over their heads, and they were all in their white togas. You've got three women, two men, then Raymond looking at them, like, you know. And the first woman turns and smiles at me, you know. With, with the, it almost makes me cry to think about her smile. 
she just smiled and turned back. And I, I stood there with, with patience. And then the next woman looked past the first woman. And then the next woman. So I've got all three who have now turning and look at, looking at me. But it was the first woman who leant forward and, and said to the two men, Raymond's here. And, I, and the relief of like, they know my name. I'm supposed to be here. This is, this is, this is beautiful. All of what I've been through. Um, I, I'm, I'm happy to be here. I don't, I don't want to go back. There was, wasn't even, I didn't even give a, a single thought, Jeff, to what I've just left behind. Everything was just magical. There was, I can't, if you said, would you like to go now, Ray? I'd go now. And, and I mean that. It was just that sort of place. So as the woman said, Raymond is here. Raymond has floated to the guy with the black beard. And he's seen another guy next to him who looks like Santa Claus. You know, big white fluffy beard, a little bit balding on the, on the top. In his hand, he's got a brown tanned book. So I'm next to the guy with the beard. I've floated around him and I've come to the right shoulder of Santa Claus. He's called him Santa Claus. And I've heard him say to the women, he didn't even look up. He had his book in his hand, didn't even look up. He just said he shouldn't be here. And he did that. And with that, I woke up in the back of the ambulance like, bang. And um, I've, I've woke up and I've looked up at uh, Rebecca. And the first thing I said, I felt guilty, Jeff, because of so there's the time to check out. Now's, now's the time, Ray. I looked up at her and I apologised. I said, oh, I'm really sorry about that, Rebecca. And I said, I was just on the other side there. Mm-hmm. She said, do you go on the other side a lot, Ray? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do. I said, I come from a family of seers. I said, if you park up, I'll make you a cup of tea and I'll tell you all about it. Mm-hmm. She went, no, no, Ray. And she reached over me, Jeff, and on the side of the ambulance was a, a red LED clock. She flicked it. She went, you died, Ray. She said, what's done outside your house? Uh, and, and I'm thinking, she, no, she doesn't, she doesn't she's, she's not getting this. She flicked the clock. She went, you died at exactly 12 o'clock. It went to zero. She said, oh, I've never seen that before. She said, and now, and now you're telling me that, you know, you, you, you're, you're, you're sorry about that. Uh, uh, we're still outside your house. We we can't leave until we've we brought you back. Uh, you know, so I'm I'm thinking I'm feeling great, Jeff. I, I'm thinking I don't know what all the fuss is about. I just don't know, but it'll work itself out when we get to the hospital. So we're speeding through my town. And I can see the blue lights flicking off the sides of the of the, of the windows of houses. Uh, we get to the uh, get to the ambulance place. Uh, at the hospital, the doors crash open, out they come. I get bounced out the back on the, on the gurney. I can hear them say, 47-year-old male, cardiac arrest. And uh, I, I'm just thinking, just, just let it go, Ray. You know, this is just a bad dream. We get into the hospital and watching the fluorescent lights go over my head like, you know. And I've entered into the ICU unit. And that's where I met the crash team. And... Uh, that was, I was still in denial by that time. It's like, nah, something not, there's something not right here. Need your next kin's telephone number. This softest Irish female voice says to me to my right-hand side. I turn my head towards her and I say, am I that bad? 
And she went, yeah, she said, we don't think you're going to make it. And I remember thinking, if you tell my mum now, it'll, it'll finish her off. She was already quite ill, like, you know. So I don't want anyone to come to the hospital, like, you know. Only if I don't make it, obviously, then tell my mum, like, you know. But don't say anything to anyone, like, you know, unless I don't make it. So I've made that decision. And then I lay there and I waited. I waited for what was coming next. And uh, what, what came next was not was not the same scenario as in the back of the ambulance. It was it was absolutely terrifying just because I knew I must have known in the back of the ambulance outside here that I was coming back. You know, I must have had some sixth sense of that. But being in the ICU unit, lying on that gurney. Uh, was I felt the loneliest man on the planet. I don't know if you know Greek mythology, but Prometheus. It, it was when he used to, he got chained for his for his sins. He got chained to a rock, and every morning uh, an eagle would come down and, and eat out his internals. You know, and he would heal after the eagle had gone. And that's who I felt like. I felt like Prometheus, and, uh, because that's when it started. That's when it really started going. Um, they said to me that you passed, we stopped counting, Ray, at five times we resuscitated you, but we think nine is, is that's, that's the general consensus, like, you know, that's how many times you went. So I, I, I said, well, we might as well bring it to 10, because Bill resuscitated me as well, you know, within the house, like, you know. So the Irish woman next to Kins, I've looked at the clock, right, you know, and, and the clock is it's getting for about quarter past twelve now. And uh, I, out of the corner of my eye, I felt my life flow flood out of me, drain away from, from almost from the centre of, of, of the side of my body. As I was lying on the gurney. I was aware um, that this isn't this isn't good, you know, um, and. Back in the 80s, I used to do a lot of LSD. And, um, for me, survival is equating what's going on now to experiences that you've had in the past. Right? That's how I cope with, with difficult circumstances. So I felt as though I was on a diving board and ready to dive into the universe. That was how I felt. That's how isolated I felt. And, and with the the life force ebbing away out of me. I felt cold and clammy. And, and to my left, I'd seen whatever life force it was was draining out of me. But to the right, something entered into the room with the ICU room. And it was a non-distinctive shadow, but it was behind people, you know. And I thought, as long as it's so, uh, I'm watching them, bearing in mind they're resuscitating now, you know. I'm, I'm now dying backwards and forwards. Just like tennis, bring him, hit me one way, bring me back another way. And when I when I'd come back, I'd be aware that I'd, I've come back. Right, you know? And out of the corner of my eye, there was this this shape, and I knew it was. I knew death was in the room. I thought of Granny straight away. I thought this is what Granny had seen, Ray. This is this is where you are now. And, uh, and then, boof, I was gone. And I remember I was on the other side. A couple of years ago, as I was dabbling in the seeing, I became a member of the Healing Trust here in the UK. 
Uh, the Healing Trust is a, a trust which was run by Harry Edwards. I don't know if any of you have heard of Harry Edwards, but if you get a moment, check out Harry Edwards. He is there's a, the Harry Edwards Foundation here. This talk about a healer. This this man is phenomenal. Um, so Harry Edwards, check him out. So I became a registered healer with the Healing Trust, and a chap called Dave in California had a brain tumor. He's a, an expat in California, gets diagnosed with this brain tumor, has heard about me through, through the grapevine. Um, I was working with animals by then, as well as doing my own normal mainstream job, seeing illnesses on horses or dogs and things like this. Um, I, was, I was in demand. And um, I uh, thought to myself, this is not so bad. So Dave had heard about me, came over from California, has the brain tumour, makes an appointment to come and see me here. He's talking to me. They told him that he's only got maybe like a week or so to live. And, um, I, th- I thought to myself, right, okay. Um, he said, can you do anything? I said, I'll do whatever I'm told to do. If you put me hands on him and da, da, da. Anyway. He goes back to California, dies in California. His wife contacts me, says, thank you very much. Dave survived. Whatever you did allowed him to survive. He was eternally grateful. And, uh, thank you. Da, 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 da. So back to the, to the ICU room. I'm now on the other side. I know I'm on the other side. Uh, you know, it's a place which I didn't know, but I, it was later deemed that I went to the grey by other, other researchers. I found myself in a throng of tightly packed people, just this little soul. And as I've looked up, I found that I was levitating up. And as I've got up to shoulder height of this guy, we've had eye contact. And it's Dave. And Dave has gone, Ray? I've gone, Dave? He went, what are you doing here? Well, I don't know, Dave. He went, you're not supposed to be here. And, and as he's telling this, I'm rising. You know, and now we're at eye level and I can see above all of the other heads. And it's like thousands of people are coming out of a football stadium, tightly packed together um, with their heads down. But above their heads is the wind. Um, and the wind is like a black carbon barbed wire. It's just cracking over people's heads. And no one's looking up. And, and, and I've watched this, this wind dissipate into like carbon dust as it's flashed over people's heads. And the next thing I know, Jeff, is that my nose is on the ceiling tiles of the ICU unit and I'm falling backwards. And it was a really disturbing, out of all of that, it, that was the, probably one of the most disturbing things, the falling backwards, because I didn't know where I was going to end up. But obviously I've crashed back into my body and, and I've, I've woke up, you know, and I've, I've, so from, from a prone position to... to to six or seven people working on me, jumping all over me to keep me alive. I've come, it was like a horror movie. I've come back and I've sat up bolt upright, like, you know, and I pointed my finger at all of the staff. And, 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 and I went, uh, I won't swear, but I went, oh, well needed that. And I've crashed, and I've crashed back down and died again, like, you know. So they're bringing me backwards and forwards and backwards and forwards. And before I knew it, it was over. Like the next thing I knew it was like the storm had finished and there was this um, the strangest calmness that came over me. And 
they tell a lie, one more, I came back, landed back on, on, on the gurney, and I came back around and I could hear people saying to me, Ray, Ray, it's us, it's us, stop it, stop it, Ray, stop it. I had two people on either leg, uh, people on my arms, people on my shoulders holding me down because I was fighting, I was kicking, I was punching. Uh, you know, Ray, it's us, it's us, stop it, stop it. So, you know, I've come around like, you know, and, and um, sort of looked at everybody and it, it stopped. Everything had stopped. And, uh, and, I, and I smiled. And it was the Irish, the, the angelic Irish nurse. She said, I can see you all right now. She said, because you've got a smile. And I went, thanks, like, you know. So they did what they had to do. They wheeled me onto the IC, onto the intensive care unit bed. And uh, by this time, I think it was getting off about 20 past one in the morning. So it'd been a real, a real slog of an hour and 20 minutes of fighting for my life. And I'm lying in, 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 in the hospital bed. They've got me on morphine. Uh, and, uh, my ribs were cracked. Uh, my, my teeth were, were, were cracked where they shocked me so much. Uh, all of the, uh, uh, you know, everything felt, I felt like I'd been microwaved. And, uh, morning came. And uh, who, who turns, the first person who I see turns up, it's Rebecca. Mm. She's brought one of her co-workers with her. The other guy, I don't know, he must have gone home. I don't know, but she, as she's walking towards my bed, I heard her say, he's still alive. He, here he is, here he is. And so the two of them are standing next to me. You know, I'm morphined up. Uh, and I'm thinking, I don't know what the problem is because I had no pain, like, you know. And I think it's just, just a bad dream. And she went to me, you don't know how lucky you are. She said, we were parked up so close to your house. She said, normally, she went, we don't come to, to somebody who survives. She said, we just come to a dead body. She went, that's why we're so shocked that you're, you're still alive. The odds of you still being here are, are, are just incredible, like, you know. So I thanked her and, and, and off she went. But there was another moment in, in the ICU unit of one of my death experiences where I ended up, my soul sat on my forehead and I could feel the cold clamminess as, as my body was dying underneath the pads of my soul's feet. So there I was crouched with my two feet on my forehead and I'm looking left and right and I watched a guy called Barry. This was towards probably the last attempts that they were going to do to, to resuscitate me. He said to everyone else, and, you know, bear with that. I'm looking at my body. It's laid out in front of me. They've cut, cut up my, my T-shirt, whatever they've done. And, and, I, and I felt really guilty because I never said thanks, never said thanks to this body. I didn't appreciate that. This is probably the most beautiful thing will ever be given. And so there I was, lonely soul, looking down at my body, and as they were working on me, I, I could see, I could see the lifelessness in the way my body flopped, the way they were just, there was just nothing, just virtually nothing left of me. And Barry had said reservedly to the rest of the ICU crash team, if this doesn't bring him round, nothing will. And he did this, you know. And I remember, as I'm on my forehead, my soul, I remember looking at him, thinking, he doesn't know that this is going to hurt, you know. And he hit me with this defibrillator, and it was that was the final tipping edge, you know. So he came to see me after the ladies had, had, had disappeared, the other two paramedics, 
And, and he comes up to me and he, and he went, he went, do you know what? He went, you, you are effing bizarre. He went, seriously, man. He went, I've never seen anything like that before in all my time that I've been on ICU unit. He went, you were freaky. He went, you were coming up. He went, you were fighting us. He went, we couldn't, he went, some of the things that you were saying. He went, you, he, he, he went but when you came up and pointed the finger at all of us, he went, he went, we knew, we knew then that you was, there was fight left in you, like, you know? And uh, so I, I, I was, I'm trying to think, this is the bloke who blasted me with the, so he disappears, you know? A couple of days later, and I'm still in hospital, they decided they're going to put a stent in my heart. I've got a blocked artery and I've got heart disease. So um, they take me to the operating room. Do you want to be awake or do you want to be put to sleep for the stent? I'll, I'll stay awake, thanks, like, you know? So I'm in the operating theatre again. They've got the uh, the crash box. He says, we've left the crash box between your legs. He said, because you, you, you've, got habits, you've got a habit of frightening everyone. You want. So, you know, uh, so preps me up. Really nice, cool consultant surgeon. He said, uh, so, starts the conversation. My nurses have been telling me that you've been really frightening them. And uh, I've looked up. And I'm sorry about that, Doc. So I come from family seers. And, uh, I went, but I'm really appreciative that, that I'm still here. And he said, see ya, see ya. He said, so what do you, what do you see? I went, oh, inflammation, cancers, you know, just that kind of thing, really. He went, do you see anything on me? I'm thinking, the operating theatre. Uh, I, I went, uh, can I touch you? And he, and when I work, I, I go into an altered state, Jeff. I'll still talk to you, but I know that I'm working. Right? It's the most lightest of altered states. So I said, can I touch you? He says, yes. I said, do you know what's wrong with you? And he went, yeah. And, uh, so I touched him, three or four, or five spots. And then I beckoned him in. So it was all right. He went, yeah. I said, do you have trouble pooing? And he went, yeah. I went, you won't, you won't have trouble with pooing anymore. And, he, and I knew it worked because he was a half-caste guy and he blushed. And that's a normal thing when I work on people, that they get a blush to them, right, you know? Mm. So it was a, a success. They did the stent, they wheeled me out. I'm in the recovery room and one of the nurses, the female nurse who was in the room, looked left and right furtively and said, can I be really unprofessional? Said, yeah, yeah, of course you can. She said, do you see anything wrong with me? Yeah. Uh, do you know what's wrong with you? Yeah, same room. Can I touch you? Yeah. Touch you. Am I right? She went, yeah. And I got, hang on a minute. I went, um, there's a man superimposed over you who's got a problem with his left knee. And uh, she went, right. Um, she said, uh, do you see anything else? I went, no, that's all I see. She said, well, if I'm to tell you that my husband is an athlete, and he's coming to the hospital today to have an operation on his left knee. Do you believe me? I went, yeah, sure, that's exactly what's happening. She said, so I don't know how you've done it, but you've seen my husband. You know, she's operating the Jeff, no rings. I don't, didn't know her from Adam, like, you know. Mm-hmm. Wheel me out, make a good recovery. That was, um, that was really the start of everything. That was the start of the new Raymond O'Brien. That was, um, how, how do I survive? How do I cope with this? How do I cope with the with the events? How do I process what's happened? Uh, so the, the the deal was on was to find help, and um, I, I couldn't couldn't find any help. Could not. I could find lots of people, you know, with the and I mean this with the greatest respect. 
with 100% respect. But love, care, share, rainbows, twinkly hearts do not work for the majority of cardiac arrest in these devices because it's so traumatic. So I was bumping into people. I went into the medical profession to get help. And that was when I realized that you are in serious trouble here, Ray. I couldn't find anyone, Jeff. I would be sitting with experienced psychiatrists, you know, you know who yeah, sent to me because he's suffering really heavy trauma. Was classed as having complex PTSD as long as, uh, as along with, you know, the, the normal stuff, the heart failure and that. And, um, so I would be bumping into psychiatrists who, who would often say, I don't know, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to answer your question. I, I, I don't know. You know. I would end up with other counsellors, other therapists who would start crying in front of me, um, would, would know about my history because of, because of the assessment. And then there would be counter-transference. They would start asking me if they have cancer. You know, and, and, and so the roles would be reversed. And I'd go back into, into a healing role. And I'd go, yeah, you have. Like, you know, where? And, and I'd point, I remember one, three spots, yeah, three spots of cancer. And uh, lo and behold, she didn't believe me. But I, somehow I have an ability to maybe see two or three years down the line, even before an MRI scan will pick you up. Your body will tell me that you have cancer. Like, you know? And uh, so she, she was dismissive. But um, she came back. She came back to me. And, uh, you know, the, the breast was taken off. And uh, I ended up at the very charity uh, doing voluntary work. Um, and I'd heard about the impact I'd had upon her. Uh, so, you know, this is, it, it's not, it's, as I say, it's not all love, care, share. And this is why I go to hospitals, is to preach this. Is I, I, I can't turn, I was at the, at the Royal London Hospital. It's a famous teaching institute. Uh, they said, come along, tell us, Ray, about the psychological impacts of what you've had to cope with within the medical profession. Because so many of you with the advancement of, of, of medical technology are surviving, which is great. But what we found is many of you are coming back with severe psychological issues. Right? You know, and we don't know about it. We just, and I'm staggered, you know, because near death, the first near death case was, was, was done by Plato, which was the myth of Ur, like in 575 BC. Right? You know, so this is the first recorded. And we're still not learning. We're still thinking that love, twinkly lights will cure everything. But it doesn't. And that's why 25 a day are committing suicide because to live in this world and have seen and experienced what I have been conditioned through school, uh, you know, maybe Sunday school. Most of us went to Sunday school and, and there's, there's, we're taught, you know, the difference between good and bad. We're often threatened by our families or, or it's internal references. If you don't behave, you'll go to hell. You know, we have all of this put into us, uh, you know. So when you survived, Right. not just myself, but many other of us survivors, we are turning to help to people who have got no comprehension of what we have seen. And I learned that it can be destructive. And this is why I took the road that I, I went down. I gave a talk, the synergy, the completeness of the, of the circle. Can you come back, Ray, and give a talk to the hospital that saved your life about the psychological effects? 
there's going to be some really big wigs there from the NHS, the National Health Service, you know, and they, they want to hear what you've got to say. So I gave this beautiful talk. I was with uh, another cardiologist, uh, Ken Spearpoint. He, him and I did a, a program on the BBC together. Uh, a very knowledgeable guy with, with research. <clears throat> and uh, he asked me the questions. Talk was amazing. Uh, one of the big ones said, Ray, you know, if you could tell us, there was things about 80 or 90 people in the audience. If you could tell us how we could help somebody like you, what would it be? I said, you need a Ray in every cardiac rehab unit. I went, I'll do it for nothing. I went, I'll, I'll do it because I don't want to see somebody go through what I had to go through. Right, you know? So at the end of the talk, big tall guy gets up, comes up to me, introduces himself. I couldn't help but hear what you said, he said. He went, you'd be such such a great help. Have you thought about becoming a, a, a psychotherapist, stroke counsellor? No, can't say I have. Mm. He went, I've got a local newspaper here. And he said, and they're running a, a four-year course to get proper qualified to be one. Would you be interested to, 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 to do that? I went, oh, yeah, give us it here. So I tracked it down and I started this course. Like, you know, so it ends up with uh, either... Um, um, I ain't qualified, but I went for the higher, higher national diploma. So I'm waiting on that to get my results. So I'm already qualified, like, eh? which meant that I could work with other charities and to get my message across. So I do this on the advice of this paramedic. So when they asked, I got asked again two years ago to come back to the, the Royal London Hospital of Whitechapel. As I said, there's been a hospital less since the 12th century. I get in there, give a talk. It's Guy gets up, walks towards me, and he, and, he, and he knows me by my first name. Hello, Ray. And I'm thinking, I, I, I know you know me, but I don't recognize you. It was the guy who gave me the info to, to train to be a psychotherapist. Mm. He was a paramedic at the time when he came to the talk. In between that time, he'd also had his own cardiac arrest. And that's when he heard my name was going to be at the Royal London. He thought, I have to be there. I have to come and see him. So he now runs another clinic uh, and uh, here down, down the southeast of England. So the similarities and the stitching together of, of how things have come about has been quite remarkable. Um, and, you know, now it's, it's, just, it's just gone from strength to strength, Jeff. Um, I have had... I'm up to 12 near deaths now. Um, I had the most recent one was in the MRI scan in um, St. Thomas's Hospital. Uh, being a seer, I knew something wasn't going to be right. And uh, in Christmas 2018, 2019, I had six heart attacks. And, uh, felt a bit crook. So I walked into one of the hospitals, the very hospital that saved my life, and said I got chest pains again. And uh, they went, yeah, you've had, you've had some big heart attacks. Are you all right? And I'm thinking, oh, yeah, I think so. Um, so they said, we'll, we'll send you for an MRI scan in 2019, uh, 2020. Uh, I'm in St. Thomas's Hospital and had a fear. I was in the, the machine for about half an hour, getting up half an hour. And uh, they said, we're nearly finished. I heard it come over, speaker on the inside of the MRI machine. And I remember thinking, I've gotten away with this. I don't know, I don't know where I got the thought that I wouldn't. And they said, we're going to inject you with something stress test your heart and and that was when i could hear the old uh-oh and then they injected me and it stopped my heart 
uh, but I knew when I walked into the MRI machine, the first thing I looked at was where did the staff stand? And they stood behind a glass screen. And while they were getting me set to go in the MRI machine, I'd noticed the body language on everyone and everyone was really, really relaxed. And that created an indifference in me. I knew that was going to be a payback on me because of, they were relaxed. I knew something was going to happen and they wouldn't be prepared for it. And then the next thing the heart stopped, I wasn't onto a heart monitor, so they didn't know that my heart had stopped. Um, the only, and I knew it had stopped because when, my, when I suffocate to death, my body break dances. It just starts thrashing around. Remember that old John Carpenter's film, The Thing, where that, it, it just bounces. That's how I felt inside the, the, the MRI machine. I knew it had stopped. And the, the feeling of, Maybe when you was a child, when you went swimming, you, you went down to the bottom of, of, of the swimming pool. But as you started to resurface, you knew you'd run out of breath. You know that panic? You, you, you think, am I going to make it before I, I take a gasp? Well, that is, is a very disturbing feeling. And uh, boom, my heart stopped. And inside the MRI machine, they got me out. They injected me with an antidote. And um, then my heart started it. restarted. And, and, and I'm, I'm sort of looking at everyone. I'm really dazed. And they're going, are you OK? Oh, yeah, 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 I'm OK. I've got my legs dangling over the over the side of the MRI machine. And uh, I just thought, I have to get out of here. And so I'm stunned. I'm, I feel like I've been given a good hiding. I get dressed. I walk outside the hospital. And this hospital is really famous. Have you heard of Florence Nightingale? Mm-hmm. This is the hospital where she trained. So they have the Florence Nightingale Museum. They have a book. They have her all her equipment all on display, her Bible. Just, just an amazing place. So I've come down. St. George's Hospital is very famous. There's been a, there's been a hospital there since, since Roman times, basically. Um, I come out St. George's, and I've realized, Jeff, that I came here on a motorcycle. And I'm looking at, my brain is just jelly. I'm looking at the motorcycle. I'm thinking, how am I going to ride home through the centre of London? St Thomas's Hospital is here, River Thames, Houses of Parliament. So, you know, if you've got a good bed, you can look at the Houses of Parliament. Big Ben is there, like, you know, it's a beautiful skyline you've got. So I'm, I'm looking at my motorcycle. I'm thinking, I, I, I haven't got the comprehension to ride the bike home. And I've looked to my left, and there it says the Florence Nightingale Museum. Something said, you have to go in there, Ray. So I went in there, didn't know I had to pay, got tracked down by some woman, said, you have to pay. Um, they were still days of confused. I give her the money. And what I can't understand, Jeff, is that there seems to be lots of little midgets walking around in this museum, like, you know. And uh, this, this is the sense because it gives an idea of where my brain was after what has just happened to me within the machine. And they weren't little men, they were little school kids being wandered, being shown around by, by the teachers. And it was enough to see that, to bring me back there. And I, and I rode the motorcycle home. That was one of the most eventful motorcycle journeys I've had in a long time. So I've become really accustomed to death very much. And I'm still in heart failure. Um, every day I get a stabbing pain. Every day... Uh, uh, it never leaves you. And this is this goes out to any other NDEs who, who are watching your video who have similar sort of symptoms that I have. Um, it never leaves us. It's, it's always a part of life. Right? You know? um, it touches you in the most smallest way. If I go out today, will, will, will I make it? Right? You know? 
what happens if I fall down? Um, I now have a do not resuscitate, an advanced directive. So if I have a stroke, if, I, if, I, if they find me dribbling, all you can do is make me comfortable and you have to let nature take its course with me. So this is the impact of my own near death. It's, it's like, you know, you, you, to, to resuscitate me is, is a no-no. Like, you know, my family know this, people who I work with know. So wherever I am, it's like, it's in my bag. And last time I called an ambulance um, for the heart attack, I'm in the back of the ambulance, they picked me up from here. And uh, I've shown the crew this, you can't work on me guys. Like, you know, here's the advanced directive. And it's people's perceptions of like, why don't you want to live? Why? Why have you got an advanced directive? Why? 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 Uh, you know? um, so when I've said to these guys, you can't touch me, guys. You can only make me comfortable. If you resuscitate me, it's assault. You can't do this. Right, you know? But if we don't do anything and you die, then that's it. it you know that, don't you? And, and it's like, of course I know that. You know, so these are the things that we have to deal with. And this is where Raymond O'Brien comes from in, in his quest of coming back here, um, is to help those people like myself who get no comfort from the spangly hearts, love conquers all the rainbows, like, you know, that doesn't work on me. It's, it's like, but it also doesn't work if I'm giving a talk to a hospital. They're not interested in about, oh, yeah, I live in two worlds. It's, I may as well rip up what, why I'm here credibility is gone you have to come from a medical directive otherwise the message isn't getting across being wacky is fine now you know but you can't be seen to be wacky not in in the world that i move in um i've i've moved in the world of love love is everything it doesn't work man it doesn't work for where i have been for the trauma i have suffered and and you know i i wouldn't say I, I had a bit of a, 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 a difference with somebody the other day. I posted something about a person who said he's just had a cardiac arrest, doesn't know who he is anymore, doesn't even know if he likes who he is anymore. And I thought, that's me. That's who I was. And, and somebody had replied and, and said, it's just all, you know, love is all you need and you just need to talk to somebody. Well, you don't. You know, there's, there's caveats to finding somebody. And I've learned this over the last 12, 13 years. If you need professional help, if you're disturbed so much that you don't know who you are, your family don't know, who's he? It doesn't even look like the same blood. These are things that have been said to me. Uh, you know, even, I love my family a bit, but they don't recognize me anymore. It's like, Ray, we don't even know. We couldn't help you because you were changing so much, uh, you know, trying to keep up. It's like, Jeff, in an hour, I'll take everything away from you your love of your wife, your love of your kids. I'll, I'll even give you a bit of brain damage, right, you know, and then I'll bring you back home. But you, you haven't got that connection with your family anymore. It's gone, right, you know. Can you see the complications here? You know, your family, if your family don't know what's going on, people fill the blanks in. And when they fill the blanks in, that's when the trouble starts. And if they get it wrong, it sends the survivor into even deeper isolation because now even his family don't get him or, or they don't know you anymore. It's not their fault. Uh, you know, it's not your fault. This is the ripples of the effect. And this is where I'm coming from because there is, I haven't met a Raymond O'Brien yet who works with 
validated theoretical approaches, Freud, Rogers, Maslow, you know, all of the greats. And I interweave that into my 12 years, what all, all of my 60 years, basically, of what I've learned about what it's like to, to be a seer, what it's like to be in a family seer. But I put it into a, into a medical term that I can turn up at any hospital and I can tell you this without you going, he's all right, but he's a bit out there, right, you know, because that doesn't work. Right, you know? And um, in cardiac rehab, they asked me to come back uh, shortly after the, the cardiac arrest. And um, one of the nurses said to me, now that you can't be an engineer anymore, right, what are you going to do for a living? And Jeff, no one had told me that, right, you know, because people have been kind. He's been through enough, right? You know, don't tell him that he hasn't got the brain capacity to be to be a mechanical engineer anymore. It'll destroy him. So nobody told me, you know. And this this nurse didn't know that. So with her innocent question, my reply to her was, I, I panicked. Uh, I, I said, I, I I come from a family of healers, and uh, I'll, I'll I'll get a room here at the hospital if, if I have to, just to help people. She, she said, what do, you, what, what do you mean you're a healer? I said, I'm a seer as well. She said, what do you see? Uh, well, uh, cancers and, and ailments, inflammation, you know, not all the time. It just depends if the soul speaks to me. And the nurse said, do I have cancer? And, and, I, and I knew the nurse did, and I, I went into an altered state. And there's caveats. I won't just go, yeah, you have it here. Uh, you know, there, there is an assessment from me you know, before I work on you. And uh, as there should be for all survivors, can you take the questions I'm going to ask you? Will the trauma push you over the edge? And this is what mainstream medical doesn't know about. And this is where Raymond O'Brien steps in. Uh, you know? And uh, Because I've been trained in, in this field and I've worked at big charities. All my clients were trauma related. Um, so back to the nurse. I've, I know I'm working. I've watched this hand come up, this finger and it touched the nurse because I said, turn around. The nurse has got back to me. Fingers come up and touched her just below the left shoulder blade. So it's here. So it's a millimetre inside, but it's asleep. It looked like a mouse dropping was in a little grey sway pit. And, uh, the nurse turned around with a, with a, a real scowl. And I thought, I'm in trouble here. The, the nurse said, for your information rate, it's not a millimetre in size, it's 1.2 millimetres, and it matters. You know? and, uh, the, the, the nurse said, I had a tumour on the back wall of my lung, and the surgeon told me he couldn't get it all out, but he's left this little piece in that you found. And, uh, are you sure it's asleep? Yeah, it, yeah, it is asleep. You know? She said, the reason why the size matters is because it will be measured. You know? And uh, so this nurse had the breast removed and uh, said, do you still want to work here? I'd love to work here. Do you want to work on the cancer unit? Mm. I, I tell you what, my head was just, just spinning, jumped at it, and I ended up working on the cancer unit. And the thing that I did on that cancer unit, they gave me the chapel to work out of. And uh, I used to have little, towards the end, I'd have a mini queue outside used to come in on, on, on a Tuesday and a, and a Thursday. And um, I found my abilities. People would sit next to me, Jeff, and, you know, I sit next to you, Ray, and the pain stops. Um, I've seen cancer jump from one person to another person. 
Um, I know we haven't got time for this, but there's just so, so many anecdotes, tales that, uh, you know, we're working on horses. Uh, I've done work at the Circle Bar B branch in uh, Santa Barbara, um, you know, all the President's Day. Gone into the corral. There've been twelve horses in there. I spoke to to the cowboy. Uh, they said, "I." Oh, they told me that you hit. Look at the horses. Yeah, I am. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you know what's wrong with the horses, mate? He went, "Yeah, I do." Mm-hmm. And uh, I said, "Can I come into the corral?" Uh, he went, "Yeah." He said, "Pick a horse." I went the the brown one with the with the white rump. He went, "That's the one I was going to pick." I said, "We'll put it down the coincidence." So Jeff, I came out of there. And I must have pulled out of the twelve horses. I must have pulled between three and four problems per horse. Right, you know? And I sat down and I worked the odds out. What were the odds of that? Um, and it was just mind-boggling. And I remember I got it so right. He took his cowboy hat off and he slapped his thigh. He went, "Boy, you're going to be a millionaire." Uh, and I went, "I'm not interested in being a millionaire. That's not where I'm coming from with this. Uh, I'm just here to help. That's that's why I'm here." And that's, there's a lot more, Jeff, but mm-hmm. you've got to be careful of time. I appreciate it. Yes. Raymond, that was an amazing story. Um, I really appreciate you sharing that with us. Um, maybe we can have you back so I can, I, I need a, I need another hour just so I can ask all my questions. You do need another hour. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe we can we, do that. Jeff, it'd be a privilege. Yeah. Maybe we can have you back and, um, and we can talk more, but I want to say again, yeah, thank you so much. It was an amazing story. I really appreciate you giving me your time and doing this for me. Thank you, Jeff. Uh, I, just, I just want to say that um, a lot of people who do who do the podcast, similar to you, uh, they have a profound effect on us, right, you know, uh, as as survivors. Uh, so it's, I, I always like to say this: that it does help. That's more than I could probably say. Because you know, it gives people like me, who I know I'm not mainstream uh, uh, with my indie, I know that, uh, and I choose it to be that way uh, because you know, there's only one reason I'm back here, and it's not to earn money, it's to help people, um, and that's sort of where I'm coming from. But there's a lot of things going on at the moment behind the scenes, um, a lot of big things, and as they, as I'm allowed, um, I'll. I'll, I'll I'll tell people, but um, it's going to be a lot of exposure, Raymond O'Brien, um, possibly a book, you know, you know the normal stuff. But mm-hmm. at, at the moment, my main goal is is to help those who can't get this unique, specialised help that can only be given by a survivor. Um, you know, I've, I've had arguments with people who aren't survivors. I've met imposters. You know, COVID has been a real a real test of those end years who said it's all about love and joy and don't be afraid of the other side. These are the ones who are queuing up for the injection. I don't blame them. But, you know, all of our fear. My only fear of death now is not the fear of dying, the pain of death. Right? You know, that's all that troubles me. Nothing else. Um, so you know, you've got to you've got to have beliefs. You must have the conviction in why you are back here. This isn't about making a buck out of this you know i know we all need to make a living i get that you know but a lot of who i have been in contact with i I won't give names or anything like that but i have asked myself are you only in this to make a buck out of your book where is the help for 
those of us who need ultimate help. And that's why it's driven me to, um, to, to get this kind of exposure. So I thank you for, for Jeff. I thank you for that. I really, really, really thank you for it. It means a huge amount to us survivors. More than I can say. It's interesting. I never, I never realized I had that much an effect on guests. So, you know, that's, that's great to know that I'm do. doing that, but yeah. I don't know if the guests realize that if you look at the comments of the videos, that the, the people watching the videos are getting helped. Yes. Right. This, is, this is because of what you do, Jet. And that's not, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty obvious to me um, why you do what you do. It's, it's, I know we all need to make money. I know that. But your light that you give out is a different light. Um, and you come across to me as a very genuine person. Um, so you do have that effect. So, you know, you, you, you need a pat on your back for doing what you're doing here uh, because it does does help an awful lot. Uh, um, and I was really shocked at that. It was, um, you know, I often say, because I get asked to do a lot of podcasts, 99.9% uh, um, .9 have been absolutely brilliant. Just, you know, the help that it gives. Um, um, I'm not brave enough to look at the comments. Um, mm -hmm. I'm a bit insecure like that. So it's nice to hear you say that, uh, you know. So, you know, again, it gives me like, oh, great, that's nice to hear that. I'll, I'll continue. So, yeah. Oh, wow. And that's interesting that you say that because lately I've been more asking the guests, hey, you might want to answer the comments. And I that's think some idea. of them are doing because I would generally say probably 90, if not higher, percent of them are, you know, positive and I feel pretty sure that even the people who are leaving the comment, if they actually had the guest answer them, that would be, you know, that's maybe pretty powerful for them. Or, you know, I, do you know what? I'm going to do that. Um, and do you know what, Jeff? It's beautiful to hear that. Um, yeah, I hadn't thought of that. <laughs> Gosh, mm -hmm. thank you. I shall, I shall do that. Yeah. Um, so where where would I find you, Jeff? Where would it work? YouTube? So, so what I'm going to do is once – it's going to take me probably at a week tops to get this edited. And then once I'm done, I'm just going to, I'll send you a link. I'll just, you know, send it to you. Thank and you. Then, um, and there, and before we go, are you a private or a public person? Because people watching this may want to reach out to you. So do you make yourself available on Facebook or a website? To be honest, um, at the moment, I don't have it. I don't take on any private clients at, at the moment. Mm -hmm. um, and the reason being is that, is that I have, I'm having heart issues again. Uh, and, um, I've been feeling really breathless over the last couple of months. Um, I should have had a heart op last year, just before COVID started. And, um, and they, they've already told me that if you don't get the op, you, you will die. You are, in, you are in heart failure. So I felt, I felt it like, you know, even today, lots of stabbing pains. And, uh, so that's why something to just just stop you know so what what i would say i'm not open at the moment to any sort of private practice even though i do want to um but the only thing i can say is is that drop me a line and i'll do my best my ultimate best to get back to you but you know just remember that if i don't the reason why i don't is um when the heart doesn't work properly it doesn't just affect the heart it's the engine room and it affects everything uh, uh, you know, you, you sit down and, and sleep basically. Uh, uh, so that's really why, you know, I'm just being honest of, of, of where I am. I'm expecting another cardiac arrest. That's where I am with this now. 
And obviously, you know, being in this frame of mind is, is difficult living like this. So um, I said, Ray, stop, stand still. Um, you know, if I end up back in hospital and they do the operation, it's a complicated, complicated operation. Um, you know, maybe I'll get it in time, maybe I won't. So at the moment, I kept the publicity just really down to doing, doing podcasts with, with people like yourself mm-hmm. and, um, and, and, and looking into sort of films and stuff like that. People are talking about adapting my story to a film. Um, so I've got a chat with a producer from LA Tuesday about that. Um, so it's it's happening, right, you know. So if I can, if I don't make it, if I get the chance to get go back home, um, at least I can leave a legacy here, you know. So people can, and that's really where where I'm at. I don't want to go yet. Uh, you know, I still want to do a lot, but I ain't got a choice in it. Um, so you know, if if I can come back to you, Jeff, I'll come back. I'll, I'll give you any help I can, man. So that's, that's sort of where I am. I appreciate that. Been amazing having a podcast with you today. It's been, it's been really calming, Jeff. You've got an air to you, man. It's, it's really nice. Good, thank you. Good. All right, Ray. Well, You're welcome. again, I appreciate it. I wish you a very successful surgery. Thank I, you, Jeff. I thank don't you. want you to go yet. You have, you know, more people that you can help here. So I, I'd like to. I wish you to be in perfect health. Thank and you, I Jeff. wish you the best and and um, have a great day. And you, man. Much love to you and your family. Mm-hmm. Take good care of yourself, Jeff. Mm-hmm. And hopefully, man, we'll do this again. Okay. Thanks, Ray. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you, Jeff. All the best, man. Bye-bye. Bye.